Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Amber Luong talks with Dr. Claire Hopkins about her article, Efficacy of Dupilumab in Patients with a History of Prior Sinus Surgery for Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyps. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hi, and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center, Houston. I've invited from across the pond Dr. Claire Hopkins from the Guys in St. Thomas Hospital in London to discuss her recent paper entitled Efficacy of Dupilumab in Patients with a History of Prior Sinus Surgery for Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyps. Hi, Claire. I'm so glad you're able to join me today. Um, how's everything on your side of the pond? Hi, Amber. It's really nice to be able to join you. Um, well, things in London are certainly looking a bit better. We have come out of lockdown in the last few days. Uh, we're now allowed to meet groups of six people outside. Oh, uh, we're still wearing masks. So life is still certainly not back to normal. But, you know, spring is coming and it feels as if we're turning a corner. Oh, good. Are you able to see patients uh... Uh, pretty you know okay or is it really slowed down so we're seeing patients fairly normally obviously with PPE and all of that sort of thing we're returning to fairly normal levels of outpatient and elective surgery now so certainly from the uh, medical side of things we're carrying on pretty much as close to normal as we can be oh good excellent well first of all I want to say congratulations on your manuscript and on this very well-written paper um so you know, this is obviously a very hot topic uh, in general for all of the all of us who take care of patients with nasal polyps, which is this whole role of biologics. In the um, United States, uh, the first FDA-approved biologic is actually dupilumab, and that was about uh, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, in 2019. And so because of all this interest, there's, you know, obviously a lot of question about the indications and efficacy of these medications and, and which groups of patients do you utilize them in? And, and I think your, your, your study, your post-hoc analysis kind of goes into some of those. In your, in your manuscript, you and your colleagues discussed the results of this post-hoc analysis uh, from two large multi-center clinical trials uh, with CRS, with nasal polyps and dupilumab. You know, in order to kind of get us all up, up to speed, can you give us a little bit of background of that, that clinical trial so that we all sort of know um, from, from which these, this post-hoc analysis came from? So the LIBERTY trial um, consists of two parallel groups receiving dupilumab as an add-on to standard maintenance treatment with an intranasal corticosteroid versus placebo. Uh, in the Sinus24 study, patients were treated out to 24 weeks and then treatment was withdrawn and patients were followed up. In the Sinus52, there were three arms of patients, one receiving placebo, one receiving two weekly injections of dupilumab out to 24 weeks and then changing to a four-weekly regime. 
And then in the third arm, patients continued on two weekly injections of dupilumab throughout. Dupilumab obviously being an anti-IL-4, anti-IL-13 monoclonal antibody. And the primary outcomes were really to look at change in nasal congestion score and nasal polyp score with secondary endpoints of improvement in sense of smell, improvement in Lummi score, measuring radiological severity and the SNOT22 score. And the results of that have been published already in the Lancet a couple of years ago and show that dupilumab was superior to placebo as add-on treatment for patients with severe disease in both the primary endpoints, improving nasal uh, polyp score of about two points across the population, mm -hmm. um, improving nasal congestion score and achieving significant improvements in all the secondary endpoints. So about 75% of the patients in the original study were anosmic and having had dupilumab for 24 weeks, yeah. um, this improved to only 25% of the patients. There was significant improvement in the SNOT22 over placebo, about 20 points greater than the placebo arm, and significant improvement in the radiological severity with a reduction in lumbar chi-score of seven points. Um, so, you know, really significant benefits in this group of severe patients with chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyps, which led to its approval by the FDA. Yeah, and, I, and I, just to reiterate, the severity was associated with the fact that I think inclusion criteria required that the polyp score be at least a uh, five um, out of eight, total eight, meaning like eight was the polyps are literally touching the floor of the nasal cavity. And so in order to be enrolled, you had to have at least polyps uh, uh, five, meaning that at least on one side, they were coming out into the nasal cavity. Is that correct? Yeah, very much so. So this was a severe recalcitrant group. Um, about 63% had undergone prior surgery. In order to gain entry to the trial, you had to have failed either surgery or oral corticosteroids. Um, patients had to have at least a nasal polyp score of five and the mean score baseline was six. Okay. And the mean SNOT22 score was um, 50. So again, this was a severely symptomatic group. Um, as I said, about 75% were anosmic and the mean lumbar chi-score was 18 out of 24. So they had very extensive radiological disease. So, so these are not mild to moderate patients. These are all severe patients who have failed what we would consider to be standard of care. So in this particular study, I think you looked at certain uh, small groups uh, within this patient cohort. What was the rationale of these subgroups that you looked at? Um, you know, why did you want to look at them? And then can you ex exactly describe these subgroups that you were interested in? So there were two main drivers for doing this study. First of all, it was to see how generalizable the results of the Liberty trial may be to the patient population who we would consider treating with a biologic. Now, certainly um, in context in the UK at the moment, although dupilumab is approved by the European Medicines Agency, they're not available or reimbursed for patients within the NHS. Okay. In the UK, only about 5% of our patients have access to private medical insurance and private medical care. And the cost of medications or drugs is not covered by medical insurance in, in this country. So the only way to receive something like a biologic is through the NHS. Okay. And the NHS only provides biologics for patients with severe asthma. We are currently going through an approval process and it is very likely that NICE, our regulatory body, will put in a number of restrictions on use. Okay. And although we haven't reached the endpoint, we think that patients will only be allowed to receive a biologic if they have failed at least one, possibly two or three surgeries before they're considered a candidate. So the first reason for doing this analysis was really to see that if that's the case in the UK, 
will the results of the dupilumab trial be applicable to patients that I might be seeing and considering eligible? Got it. And that's really important because, you know, we know in the dupilumab study about 70% of patients responded really well. Mm -hmm. But what if the non-responders were all the patients that have had two or three surgeries and they're the only group I'm allowed to treat? So I really wanted in the first instance to evaluate, is this going to still be a good population to treat? Okay. The other driver was actually the opposite. And we wondered if perhaps patients who have a higher number of surgeries, particularly those that have had a short interval from their last surgery, so early recurrence, were perhaps better candidates for dupilumab treatment. And the rationale for that comes from a study I've just um, had accepted for publication working with Professor Valerie Lund, who you all know well, where we were looking at the time to failure and whether that predicts future need for revision surgery. And what we found was that looking at patients who had come to revision surgery within three years of their last operation, they had a significantly higher risk of needing further surgery moving forward than those that had a longer interval between surgeries. And we found that this was one of the most significant risk factors for failure of that operation when put into multivariable regression. So it was a more important predictor than having asthma and second only to the presence of aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. So an early time to failure seems to be a very good marker of a failure of conventional treatment we think likely to reflect a high level of type two inflammation. So we wanted to assess if this group, particularly the early failure group, early recurrence group, actually failed to respond to dupilumab in the same way, or whether actually this was a predictor of a better responder to biologics. Got it. Uh, so were these planned post hoc group analysis or this was something uh, after the study had already been done? This was after the study had been done, and obviously that's one of the limitations, but it really came out of discussions um, looking at use in the UK, which is kind of a unique environment in terms of healthcare provision, I guess. Got it. Okay, so um, in the introduction, you mentioned that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug exasperated respiratory disease, um, what we refer to as AERD here in the United States, um, show higher rates of polyp recurrence in revision surgeries. It, was that also another group that you looked at in your post uh, in your post hoc analysis, or something that you're intending to to look at? Because they are also one of those. It's sort of like a uh, overlap in subgroups, right? Like they're the the ones that probably have most surgeries. So I, I couldn't see in that, uh, and maybe it was in one of the supplemental tables. You know, what percentage of of those AERD patients made up the, the, you know, the ones that had more than three surgeries and so forth in your subgroup analysis? So you're absolutely right. It's likely to be a confounder. And we think that patients with early recurrence and an increasing number of surgeries um, are selecting out a higher proportion of those patients with AERD. And we haven't looked at that with this current paper, but that's something that we plan to look at with future publications. Um, but as I mentioned before, we found putting both time to failure and AERD into an independent multivariable regression in another study, that both of these um, were important predictors. So can you tell me, so now that you sort of highlighted the groups that you were interested in, um, what was the conclusion that you made about those patients when you compared those who had no history of prior surgery but may have failed uh, steroids and were put on dupilumab versus those that had one, two, or more than three surgeries? What was the conclusion that you guys came up with after your analyses? So the first finding relating to the number of surgeries was that dupilumab was effective across all groups, 
and the number of surgeries in itself didn't appear to predict the success or, or the effectiveness of dupilumab. In contrast, what we found in looking at the time from the previous surgery, we found that those that had an interval of less than five years actually had significantly greater chance of achieving um, a responder rate in terms of reduction in polyp score. And there was a clear trend to greater effectiveness in some of the other endpoints, such as improvement in the lumbar chi score, improvement in SNOT22 and UPSIT scores. So as we suspected, an early time to failure or early time since last surgery seems to predict those who have a higher type two inflammatory load and therefore seem to respond better to a biologic. And that's really important because this is the group that tend to be failed by standard medical care. They don't do as well um, with surgery. They get early recurrence, but the good news is they actually seem to do better with a biologic. Yeah, so I thought that was actually the most fascinating aspect of, of your surgery. It also made me think that, you know, it gives us a little bit of an idea about the uh, inflammatory maybe profile in those patients who recur maybe 10 years later. Maybe it was triggered by some sort of viral infection. They were doing just, you know, perfectly well or, or something that triggered them. But it, it suggests that maybe the, as you suggested, the inflammatory profile is not nearly as robust and hence maybe blocking IL-4 and IL-13 in those patients may not be as effective. Um, is that what you, I mean, obviously it's, we sort of have to just extrapolate based on your data. There's nothing, you know, uh, directly looking at that. It's, but is that the con kind of conclusion you're thinking? Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done for all the biologics, including dupilumab, looking at responder analyses and really trying to identify biomarkers that will predict the responders. Um, and as yet, we haven't been able to do that accurately. Um, certainly with dupilumab, eosinophil count, for example, doesn't seem to clearly predict response. And some patients respond even with a relatively low eosinophil count. Mm -hmm. What we found in this study was that there was a trend with increasing eosinophil count with the number of surgeries in time from last surgery. So again, we, it looks as if we're predicting those with type 2 inflammation who have early recurrence, who have a higher number of surgeries and therefore do better with a biologic. And as you say, those that do well with surgery and may go for 10 years without a recurrence have a much lower type two inflammatory load. So clinically, um, you know, just trying to put it, the context of your study and what you guys found in the bigger picture with all the other data, I guess clinically, what's the take home message for us taking care of patients with CRS with nasal polyps? Where, I, I guess, what's the immediate take home about the utilization of, of at least dupilumab in CRS with nasal polyps based on your conclusion from this very particular study? So what we're all trying to do is to identify the perfect patient in whom to consider a biologic, you know, and in order to make good cost-effective use of all healthcare resources and try and position biologics in our normal patient pathway. I think to me, what I take her message from this paper is that patients should have a good endoscopic sinus surgery at the beginning of their polyp journey when they failed simple medical management. And we know that many of those patients would do well for long periods. But if we see a patient back after that first surgery with a significant symptomatic recurrence within three years, then I think that's a good candidate for a biologic. And that would be the right time to consider that patient a candidate for a biologic rather than waiting till they get to their second, third or fourth mm. surgery. But if they have benefit for a much longer period, then you may want to consider other options or revision surgery before thinking about a biologic. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a, a very good point. And the one thing, I mean, that's the, the big picture from your study. 
I, when I was reading it, there was so much data there that you had, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of it was in the supplemental data. Were there some other um, take-home messages from maybe some of these, um, you know, uh, cross-reference of, of data points, you know, instead of, in, in addition to the subgroups, like, like I talked about, like for the, um, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory exasperated respiratory disease patients, AERD patients, or uh, older patients, were there other factors in addition to the surgery, other confounders that may that we may also need to think about when when thinking about you know whether or not a biologic is indicated um, after they've recurred within three years of their first surgery per se, for example. I think you know there will be more work to follow on that, but I think particularly the AERD group, we know tend to have high rates of recurrence. They tend to present earlier. Um, I think any patient that recurs within three years should prompt the question, has this patient got AERD? Because we know that it's often poorly diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that that may open up other options for treatment, such as aspirin desensitization as well. But I I think it encourages us to treat patients at an earlier point in their pathway with a biologic if they do have an early recurrence, um, considering all those other factors as well. And it may allow other patients to continue on the more conventional treatment pathway. So, you know, certainly in the UK, we are in a severely sort of financially restricted environment in terms of healthcare, and we will only be able to offer biologics to a very selective group of patients. Mm -hmm. And so this is really all about trying to identify those who are going to gain the most benefit. When we've looked at the AERD patients, and, and this will hopefully be published in months to come, we found that they also respond better Um, than the other patients. So again, it's a group that we know traditionally do badly with conventional treatment pathways, but tend to get greater benefit from a biologic. Again, likely reflecting that higher type two load. And can you help us put in perspective, what percentage are these patients that make up CRS with nasal polyps? Because, you know, at least I understand in the UK, it's a little bit more restrictive in the United States, at least for now, it's much more, uh, you know, um, it's a lot easier to make that prescription, but yet the cost is significant, regardless of whether you're at the UK or, or in the United States. So, um, and so I'm afraid that that we may be overutilizing this medication. I mean, it works wonderful for those that it works for. Um, but what percentage are we talking about? Is this a relatively small group of patients that we should be considering it? Or is this something that when they have nasal polyps, I should start thinking about the role of biologics, you know, even early on um, in their pathway? So when we take patients who have primary surgery and they have a good endoscopic sinus procedure and good post-doctor medication, the five-year revision rate is less than 10%. So actually, for many of our patients, we can achieve good durable outcomes with the treatment that we have already. And, you know, I think it's quite a big step to consider putting all of those patients on a biologic, which, you know, has potential risks of side effects. We've seen a small number of patients with hyper eosinophilic type pneumonitis. Mm -hmm. We've seen a small number of patients with joint pain, hair loss. And although these are generally well tolerated, know this is a systemic medication that needs to be given long term in order to achieve success exactly much better in those patients to use a topical steroid after a a good simple operation Um, and for the vast majority of patients I think that is enough so again it's about appropriate use of resource minimizing the risk to the patient 
And I think, you know, in my own mind, I would consider a biologic only after that first surgery, as I said, and, and this idea to early recurrence, I think helps to pick out those patients who I think will likely continue to fail with standard pathways and, and get the most benefit. Exactly. And that's kind of the point I wanted to highlight is that, um, you know, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of excitement for the biologics, especially for those of us who've been frustrated by those patients who do recur. But it's important to keep in mind, like you said, that that revision rate is still relatively small um, if they have the appropriate surgery for that patient. Um, so, you know, a complete sinus surgery, opening up all their sinuses in someone with nasal polyps affecting all their sinuses is, is, at, is the minimum that needs to be done before you, and, and, and the re revision rates for them are only 10%. So it's still a relatively small group of patients, but for those, this is a huge um, game changer uh, given um, for quality of life and and at not having to uh, to have to you know undergo re, you know revision surgery within months of their of their first surgery. So I think that's the point that we kind of want to keep in mind. You mentioned some of the adverse events from these studies. I've you know I've had patients on dupilumab now, and some of them report headaches. Is that or or what? Can you go over some of the more common side effects that we should be expecting um, that some of our patients would may report on dupilumab? So generally, they were well tolerated in all of the trials, but obviously in real life data, um, it can be more difficult to interpret side effects. But certainly nasopharyngitis, conjunctivitis can be quite common. Um, I haven't seen many patients with headaches, but actually my experience is, is probably very limited compared to yours in the US. Um, hair loss does seem to be reported, uh, particularly in women, and, and joint pain can be restrictive in some um, all patients will get an elevation of serum eosinophilia and that in itself isn't usually anything to be concerned about but very rarely dupilumab can expose a sort of subclinical EGPA type picture mm -hmm. so occasionally that sort of very significant increase in eosinophil count can be something more worrying and I've had one patient with a very severe sort of eosinophilic pneumonitis where we had to withdraw the drug so you know they, it's not without side effects and we do need to be wary of that before we start to put everybody with nasal polyps on a biologic. You know, these, these are systemic drugs that do need to be given long term. Are there specific uh, uh, labs that we should be following on patients that we do end up having to put on dupilumab or um, I, I mean, yeah, on dupilumab. So should I be checking a, a CBC or ES serum eosinophil level after three months well, we something. do follow the serum eosinophil count. Okay. Um, however, it goes up and we just watch it go up and it tends to level off a little bit sort of further down the line. Okay. Um, so I very rarely act on that count anyway, but I think it is, you know, we should be monitoring it and be aware that it does increase after treatment. And then the patient that you referred to that you ended up having to take off a dupilumab, they ended up having some um, lower airway symptoms, I suspect? Yes. I mean... Very difficult because um, obviously during the COVID pandemic, initially we all thought that the patient developed COVID and it was quite difficult to see and assess him. Um, but sort of a bronchoscopy showed that it was a neosinophilic pneumonitis, which is very rare, but you know, these rare complications will happen. Excellent. Any final thoughts on, you know, on the utilization of dupilumab in, in these patient populations or anything else from your analysis that we should uh, also keep in mind? No, I'd, I'd really like to echo your voice of caution. I think, 
you know, for the vast majority of patients that we see with nasal polyps, current treatment pathways of good endoscopic sinus surgery. And by that, I agree that we should be opening all the sinuses. This is not a disease for minimally invasive techniques, really good post-operative care. And in the AARD patients using some of the adjuncts such as aspirin desensitization will achieve good durable results in the vast majority of our patients. So we want to think very carefully about who are the good candidates for biologics and how we should use them. And, and this paper was really one of the things that might help guide us in finding those patients that fail early on um, and I think they would be an ideal candidate in my mind. Yeah, excellent. And, and thank you so much for your contribution and helping us figure out exactly, you know, what patients uh, it would be appropriate for and maybe which patients it may be less effective for. So thank you for making that contribution. One last final thought before I leave you. Are there um, anything in terms of how long we should keep these patients on the dupilumab based on some of these analysis? Like, um, you know, I know that all these studies are for six months um, and then one was for the year long treatment. A anything in, in your analysis that helps us to figure out how long we should keep going with the dupilumab? So there's no, there's no evidence at the current time that dupilumab or any of the other biologics have a disease modifying effect. Mm -hmm. And in all the studies to date, the effect is lost um, within usually 16 weeks of the last injection. Right. So patients will benefit only whilst they're receiving active treatment. Obviously with real life studies and longer term use, we can look again to see if there is an opportunity to withdraw treatment or perhaps then look at whether starting biologics at an earlier point may have a disease modifying effect. But at the moment, there's no evidence of that. So it does look as if patients will need long term treatment in order to benefit. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's another factor we have to keep in mind when thinking about committing someone to such a therapy, at least until we have a little bit better guidance as to maybe if there's a way, if it does modify the disease or, or an opportunity to wean them on, onto something that's either not systemic or, um, you know, uh, less expensive uh, or some, you know, other options that we have there. Well, I think uh, one of the things that we will need to look at is whether we can increase the interval of injections. So dupilumab yeah. is obviously licensed for two weekly injections, but I think there is potential once control of the disease is achieved, you know, we've got a low polyp load, um, a low radiological load that we might be able to increase the interval significantly, and that will reduce the costs quite a lot. Yeah, that's a good point. So still a lot of work to be done in this field, but it is very exciting for, um, you know, thinking about just more options for our patients in terms of managing, especially for those really severe patients who struggle, have surgery, endure, you know, the cost, the expense, the time, and the discomfort of undergoing surgery, and then to be frustrated by having polyps recur within a year. Um, at least there, there's some other options for us. So thank you, Dr. Hopkins. I appreciate Appreciate your time and uh, look forward to finally seeing you in person. I, I understand that the European Rhinologic Society meeting, annual meeting is still um, scheduled for later this year and fingers crossed that it will remain um, in place. Is that still the, the situation? Yes, we're very hopeful we'll be able to meet in Greece in September. Excellent. All right. Enjoy the rest of your evening um, over there and thank you so much, Dr. Hopkins. Take care. Lovely to join you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.